This is the O'Reilly Programming Podcast. I'm Jeff Blyle. Our guests today are Paul Bacher and Sander Mock. They are the co-authors of the O'Reilly book Java 9 Modularity. Paul is a senior software engineer on the Edge Developer Experience team at Netflix, where he primarily works on tools to increase developer productivity within the company. He's also the co-author of the book Building Modular Cloud Apps with OSGI and a frequent conference speaker. In fact, Paul will be giving a presentation titled Edge Pass, a Netflix case study about edge service architecture at the upcoming O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference, which will be held February 25th through 28th in New York City. And Sander is a fellow at Luminous in the Netherlands, where he crafts modular and scalable software, most often on the JVM, but with a touch of TypeScript where needed. He gave a talk called Modules or Microservices at the 2017 O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference. And you can find links to these books and conference presentations by going to Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform. Visit safaribooksonline.com for more details. We'll talk with Sander and Paul about the Java 9 module system, migrating existing code into it, some frameworks that support the module system, microservices, edge architecture, and a lot more. Enjoy the show. Hello, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. How are you? Good. And Sander, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having us. Well, let's start with Java 9 modularity. So at the time we're recording this, Java 9 has been out in the world for about four months, and modularity and Project Jigsaw were the most discussed, and, and I think it's safe to say the most controversial aspect of the new release. So after four months, uh, what do you think the verdict is, or, or is it too early to tell? Four months is very really early to tell, looking back in the history of Java. Unfortunately, looking back at any Java release in the past, it took much longer for people actually to adopt and use it in production. And I think this release is not going to be in a difference uh, in that aspect. It's very important because I, I think people should move a lot faster, actually. But that's um, that's a different discussion, I guess. From people that did get on uh, onto it and started playing with it, I think everyone is very positive about it. Yeah, so I think possibly the controversy turn people off a little bit about Java 9 because well, it's scary, of course, if there's so much debate. But like Paul said, it does really help you in creating more modular and maintainable applications. And of course, the module system in Java 9 is optional. So if you're going to move to Java 9, you don't have to use it. Of course, we recommend you use it if you're starting new developments. But if you have existing code, you can use Java 9 for any of the other features, right? There's lots of performance improvements, lots of other new features that are in Java 9. So it's not all about the module system. Sure. But Speaking of modules, it is, of course, possible to work in Java 9 without using the modules. And there were some predictions that some developers would take that route and perhaps not use the modules, at least not right away. From what you're seeing or hearing, are many or most developers using the, the Java 9 modules? I would say not yet. So people who are moving to Java 9 are doing so with existing code bases. And if you have the challenge of moving a code base both to a new Java version and to a new paradigm, like the modularity um, um, aspects, well, that's a doubly hard thing to do. But like I said, I do think that the community will see that when they're starting new developments, when they're creating new applications on top of Java 9 and later, they will definitely uh, be able to reap the benefits from the module system. And this won't happen overnight. And this is also why Paul and I are quite active in telling the story about modularity. Uh, we have been using module systems on Java for a long time, and now it's finally part of the platform. So this does give great, a great uh, future for Java, but we're not there yet. And we've been talking about usage and adoption so far, but before we go any further, can you give us a quick overview of the Java 9 module system and how much of a game changer it really is? I know in your book, you've called it the start of a new era. Yeah, definitely is. I think 
everyone who, who works with Java um, is familiar with a ClassPod and not just with how the ClassPod works, but also all the problems that the ClassPod has. This is a quick reminder. The ClassPod is basically just a flat list of classes. You're not talking about jar files here. Um, jar files is kind of what we think about when we're when, when we're looking at build tools. But when it comes down to it, it's it's just class files. This causes all kind of problems. Um, having duplicate clauses, you can't really gu- guarantee that uh, your class part is complete. So you might run into class not found exceptions at runtime. And these are problems that we've been struggling with as long as we've been Java developers. And mm-hmm. I think every Java developer um, has has seen these problems. And that basically goes away with a module system. With a module pod, there's just a much more reliable way where the system can fail much faster if there are issues. And that's exactly what you want. You want to see those errors right away when you're compiling instead of somewhere down the road at runtime. And just the way that's that's structured, that that's just enormous. That that's great. And that's just, that is going to change the way we are developing. And of course, to get to those benefits, we have to start writing our code in different ways as well. So we have to start writing our codes in modules, which is not a great thing because it's just a new design tool that we have to to kind of better design our code. It doesn't mean that you have to do everything different because a lot of the concepts that we are using when writing modules, we were already using that in just proper design in code. We just have better tools to do so now. Yeah, so I think that's an important point, right? Uh, modularity is not about a new language feature, and it's not something that only now appears because we have Java now with modules. It's also an architectural principle, and it's all about two main things, encapsulation of code. So uh, you're very strict about what is public API and what is private API in your module, and also about explicit dependencies between modules, which Paul already hit upon, because in the original setup with jar files on the class path, there's just no explicit notion of dependencies between these jar files. This only lives in our build tools and all the ecosystem around our Java code. But now with a module system, you can create a module descriptor for a module, which contains statements uh, saying which packages are for public consumption, which are exported. And you can also say which other modules this module requires. And it can be used by the compiler and by the runtime and by other tools as well to reliably create a, a configuration of components of which you are certain that they work together. So this is these are the two major benefits of the module system in Java. Going back to something that Sander alluded to earlier, can you talk more about how easy or how hard it is to move or migrate existing code into the new module system? Sure. And the answer to that really depends on how well structured is your current code base. If you have a enormous code base where every class is entangled with every other class, then it will become very hard to modularize this. But on the other end, if you're already using uh, patterns like dependency injection, separating interfaces and implementations, if you're already conscious about drawing the boundaries in your domain at a code level, then it will be a much more natural migration path to modules. So what you get there is the additional benefit of tools in this case, the module system, helping you to enforce these boundaries and helping you to enforce these dependencies between different parts of your domain. And so what you get is compiler checks and and runtime checks and constraints instead of just relying on your own discipline to do so. And if you have a code base like that, uh, you're probably in a very good position to move to the module system. On the other hand, if you have a a really messy um, spaghetti-like code base, this is no silver bullet and it will be hard to to also modularize uh, in that case. So it's not really about the module system itself, but it's also about the design of your current code base if you want to migrate. Sure. What can library maintainers do to be ready for Java 9 and to get ready for using the the modular system? I think the very first and most important step is make sure that the library actually runs well as an automatic module. 
Um, the automatic module is just a plain jar file that you put on a module pod, and from there on it can be used as a module. So making something an automatic module is very straightforward. You you basically just move it from uh, the class pod to the module pod. But um, while doing so, there are some new rules you have to adhere to. So for example, um, split packages can be a problem. If you have a split package between two parts of your module, your library, and um, that ends up in being in two different modules, a user will be unable to use those two uh, modules together. And um, that's a problem a user can't fix. So that's that's really something that, that must be fixed in the library. And there's a few other kind of minor things, not really hard to get over, but um, just make sure that the library runs well as an automatic module. And that basically comes down to testing. Then the next step is when it works well um, as an automatic module, uh, you probably want to register the module name. So in um, in a manifest of a jar file, you can set a module name so that um, you choose that module name instead of the module system deriving the module name from the jar file. So when it all works fine, people can actually start using your library even if you didn't put in the time yet to actually think about exports and things like that. But of course, that is the next step. So if you want to go uh, f- uh, fully towards modules, um, you have to define your module info files, um, which means you have to decide which packages you want to export. And um, that's that's mostly just a thought process, right? It's it's not a lot of work writing code, but deciding which packages should be exported is something you have to you, you have to think hard about it. Because once you export something, you kind of don't want to take that away from a user in the next release anymore. Which means that if you export something, you're kind of responsible um, of maintaining that as well. Yeah, so I just want to point out that's the process that Paul talked about, about picking a module name and and sort of uh, claiming this module name in your manifest file. This is a really low effort change. It's just a single line adding it to your uh, meta um, uh, file in your library. And it's a really important step to take because this gives your library a stable name in the world of modules. And uh, this is really something that people then can keep on using and uh, be sure that it won't break in the future because there won't be any uh, changes to this module name. So I've written a blog post about that uh, on my blog a couple of months ago uh, containing practical advice on that. And uh, so you can read there how you can take steps to uh, make your uh, library ready for Java 9 uh, with this very easy and, and simple step. Um, if you look at the current state of the ecosystem, it's, um, of course, still pretty early on in the life cycle of, of this whole new module system and all the changes that, that comes with it. But looking at pretty much all the uh, major libraries and frameworks, all of them are, are, are working on this. The major frameworks either support modules as automatic modules uh, very well already, or they're actively working towards it. So um, you see a lot of movements to making this whole thing work in the ecosystem, which is, which is great. Another thing I want to ask you about is OSGI, and we should mention that Paul co-authored a previous O'Reilly book titled Building Modular Cloud Apps with OSGI. So can you talk about OSGI in the post-Java 9 world? How is the use of OSGI going to be impacted, and when is it still a good idea to use OSGI? The reason to either use OSGI or the module system is because you want to improve modularity on your code base. And again, modularity is, is a design principle. It's about how do I structure my code? And the tools that you use to do so are kind of less important. So your main goal should be modularize the code. And if you use either OSGI or the module system or maybe even something else, it doesn't really matter. The, the goal is get it design of your code right. So previously, uh, before the module system, OSGI was kind of the, the only real way to do so. There are some other uh, module frameworks, but but OSGI was kind of the, the only mature one. And it, it was a really, really good way 
to work with modules. It, it kind of provided pretty much the same benefits as the Java 9 module system provided. The downside of OSGI has always been that it wasn't part of the Java language. So there's always this thing on top of what we already had. And that meant that it was always hard for tooling authors and library maintainers to kind of go all in with OSGI because some of their users would use OSGI, but some of the users would not use OSGI. And this kind of split world, you could say, uh, made it very hard to get an ecosystem where everyone played nice with OSGI. Because, of course, just like with a module system, there were kind of new rules and rules around the boundaries of a module that you had to play nice with. So the biggest downside of OSGI was always support of the tools in the Java ecosystem and libraries and frameworks. Just not every, everything works well with OSGI. And unfortunately, after 10 plus years of, of OSGI, this is kind of still, yes, still the case. There's no good technical reason for this, um, but it is just a fact of life. It's, it's not a great place to be in. Looking at a module system, because it is part of the Java language and the Java runtime, tool vendors and library authors are almost forced to play nice with the module system. Because otherwise, in the next Java release, it will just not work anymore, and it will just lose their, their, their users, more or less. So because it's part of the Java runtime, there's kind of a, a stronger incentive for the ecosystem to move along with, with the module system. So it looks like that the ecosystem is picking up steam much faster with the module system compared to OCI. And it means that you will not have this kind of practical, annoying problems that you would have with OSGI just because the ecosystem didn't play nice with it. Yeah, and I think from a, a technical perspective, I mean, you can still keep using OSGI even on Java 9, just on the class path, and uh, it will have the same features and the same functionality as before. And, and and one thing to be aware of when deciding between using the Java 9 module system or OSGI is that OSGI itself has also been developed with a much more uh, dynamic mindset in mind. And what I mean by that is that in OSGI, you can have bundles that come and go at runtime, and you can have services that stop and start at runtime uh, all very dynamic and everything is built with that in mind. So there are all kinds of callbacks and, and lifecycle hooks, etc., to to deal with this um, dynamic feature of uh, OSGI. And if you need this in your application, then it will be a lot of work to bolt this onto the Java 9 module system. So in that case, it might be preferable to, to just use OSGI. Uh, on the other hand, if your application doesn't need this dynamic application composition where features can appear at runtime and go away at runtime and stop and start at will, then it might be that OSGI is a bit too much for you and you can take uh, make very good use of the Java 9 module system and, and be happy with that without the added complexity of all the dynamics that are in uh, OSGI. So that's another angle to look at uh, the differences between OSGI and, and the Java 9 module system. Well, let's talk about a practical example of how the Java 9 module system can be used to accomplish something. And again, Paul, you recently wrote an article for the O'Reilly site about how to handle dependency injection and achieve decoupling. Can you walk us through that example? Sure. So probably, as we all know, uh, dependency injection is a great way to kind of uh, decouple code. Instead of depending directly from one class to another class, you just program against interfaces and the dependency injection framework takes care of kind of at runtime, giving you instances for those interfaces. So this is, a, this is a, a, a great concept and a concept that effectively you will still need with modules. Looking at the implementations of the dependency injection frameworks like uh, the Spring framework or Juice, and um, the article is mostly about, um, about Juice, there's some practical problems coming to modules. So with modules, you encapsulate your code, and that's, that's a good thing. Encapsulation basically means that 
if a package is not explicitly exported from a module, another module can't see uh, or use that code in another module. That means that if I have my implementation classes encapsulated, which I should do, then um, another module such as juice, which is just some other module uh, technically, will not be able to access um, those implementation classes. And that means it will not be able to kind of uh, wire together the dependency graph. So that's a very practical problem that you run into when uh, you get stronger encapsulation. The Java module system comes with a feature uh, which is called services, which kind of solves this problem at the a, at a level of the module system itself. So I serve it with a service, you can say, okay, I have this interface, and uh, my module will provide an implementation for this service. Then some other module can say, I'm interested in implementations of this specific service interface. And you declare those two things in uh, your module info file. And then the module, uh, module system will take care of actually creating the instance of, of that service and giving it to the other module. While that other module, the, the, the client module, doesn't need to, to have access to the actual implementation code. So that's great. And um, the, the services are a really good way in a module system to deal with this whole concept of programming against, against interfaces again. But it's not exactly dependency injection because you're doing a dependency lookup and, um, well, technically you don't inject it anywhere. So in the remainder of the article, I'm looking at um, how can we combine services and a dependency injection framework like Juice to kind of get best of both worlds. So uh, we do want to have our at inject annotation, as you're familiar with in Juice, but at the same time, we don't want to have any coupling between the modules. So we combine services to set up the Juice uh, level modules, and um, in the end, we can still use our at inject annotation to actually inject those instances, those service instances in our code. And that turns out to be a really nice way to work. I also want to ask about some of the frameworks or toolkits that support the module system. Paul, you've cited Vertex as one of your favorite frameworks. Can you talk about that one? And then, Sander, can you talk about any other framework that you might find especially valuable? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Vertex has been kind of my one of my favorite frameworks for a long time already. It's it's um, the reason for that. It's um, very lightweight and it's it's extremely modular actually. So uh, way before the module system, uh, Vertex was already very modular. Basically, every functionality they have um, support for for Mongo, for example, or support for some type of messaging. All of that functionality is just in a separate module, and it's also a great example of how you can do really modular design without even having a module system because it's all designed in a very modular way, it was pretty trivial for them to actually start supporting modules. And start supporting modules means um, make it usable as automatic modules. So they didn't actually have to do a lot of work um, on their side. It mostly just worked. And that immediately makes the great framework in code that you write in uh, within a module system as well, because it just makes so much sense the way the whole framework is structured. So currently, there are still some minor problems. Um, I discussed those at a, at a blog post as well. There's some split packages that um, kind of makes it hard to use um, some specific modules or Vertex uh, together. Uh, but they're actively working on, well, getting over those problems. And in the next major release of Vertex, uh, the plan is to have kind of full um, module support, which means that their modules will also contain module info and um, explicitly export packages. Sandra, any, any frameworks you want to? call attention to here? Yeah, sure. So I think uh, especially the Spring framework deserves a mention here. I'm not saying this is my favorite framework, but it's a very important framework to the Java community. And they released version 5 of their framework just the end of last year. 
hot on the heels of the release of Java 9 itself. And they've also taken care of uh, compatibility with Java 9. And they've been very um, active in that. And uh, we also sort of chipped in uh, while we were writing the book and helped out there. So um, if you're using Spring 5, you're also ready for using it on Java 9. Uh, this is still based on the uh, transitional feature of uh, automatic modules. So you can use them as automatic modules and you will uh, be able to use them as such in the, in the Java 9 module system. The next step for Spring, I'm not quite sure uh, how, how far along they are there, is to make them into actual real modules using module descriptors and uh, yeah, exporting some uh, packages and encapsulating other packages. But the first steps have been, have been taken there. And um, I think it's really great to see that, that uh, a, a leading framework like Spring is already uh, ahead of the curve in, in terms of adoption of the, uh, the modules feature as well in Java 9. And one more modularization-related question. Sandra, I wanted to ask you about something you spoke about at last year's O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference in New York in your talk titled Modules or Microservices. You said correctly that a lot of the discussion regarding microservices was framed in terms of monolith versus microservices, which you called a false dichotomy because of the overlap between modularization and the microservices philosophy. Can you talk about how modularization fits into the question of whether to move to a microservices architecture? Yeah, of course. So one of the reasons I gave this talk, and I, I actually got the idea for the talk, was that a lot of people came up to me after talks Paul and I did after our Java 9 modularity um, book, that they said, okay, well, but why do, why do we need this? We have microservices now, right? So why would we be doing modules in Java? And this is actually a very fair question, because if you think about it, uh, a lot of people think about microservices as a way to modularize applications. And in essence, it is, but it's a very crude way to do modularization, if you think about it, because you're just putting network boundaries between processes. And while that works to separate concerns and to help create independent teams, etc., it comes at a great cost. And if you think about it, if you want to set up a microservices architecture, you need to think about distributed deployment, management, logging, all kinds of things that are pretty different from the previous monolithic Java application that you typically had. And there are very valid reasons to do this. But if the only reason you're moving to microservices is to actually modularize your code base, then I think you're on the wrong path because we have shown, uh, for example, that with Java 9, but also before that using OCI, there are many great ways to modularize an application without putting the network in between. And if you do it that way, the costs of moving to this huge distributed and hard to manage infrastructure, you won't have to take this cost. And again, sometimes you have very valid reasons to move to microservices for example, you have domains which you really want to solve in different technology stacks, for example. Well, yeah, then there's no other option than to create several applications that work together. Or if you have very specific scaling needs for separate services, yeah, that's also a very valid reason to move to microservices. But if you're just doing microservices because it's cool and it will help you untangle your monolith, and um, uh, if you're going to do it that way, then you might end up with a disappointment and you might even end up with something worse than your previous monolith. You might end up with a distributed monolith because if you're going the microservices route, it also means a mindset change, right? Things uh, need to communicate possibly asynchronously. You get things like eventual consistency and all these things. I mean, they're not impossible to so solve, but they're costly, they're hard, and you should, do, you should only do them if you need to do them. And looking ahead to this year's upcoming software architecture conference next month, Paul, you're going to be giving a talk about Netflix's edge architecture and some of the lessons learned during its development. Uh, first, can you give us a quick overview of, of this edge architecture? Yeah, absolutely. Speaking about microservices, like we just did, traditionally, 
the kind of the way that um, also within Netflix, um, the API worked is you had a bunch of microservices. You put some REST services in front of that, and devices would all happily consume that REST interface. There's several problems with that. First of all, every device that we have here at Netflix has a different UI. It's a different code base. They have different access patterns, and effectively, they need different data at different times. So having one API that kind of serves everyone just doesn't really work well. Um, You will end up with an API that doesn't work well for anyone, which means that you have to do several requests uh, to actually get your data, which, of course, adds latency. It just becomes really hard to to make make changes to those APIs. So it's just not ideal to have kind of one API to rule them all. Uh, secondly, it's also very inefficient. Thinking about a REST API, it just it's not great, right? It's all HTTP. It doesn't support pushing, for example. So there are some some downsides to that as well. So what our edge layer is, and the edge layer is kind of the layer that sits in front of the API services. So we have all those microservices with their APIs. Think about services to uh, get uh, data about customers, to actually do playback of streams. These are all, all separate services. We put a layer in front of that, which is, a, is our edge, and the devices connect to, to this edge layer. And what we did there is that we gave the UI teams, the device teams, the opportunity to kind of write their own API, optimized for, the, for their own access patterns. So they, they write um, scripts nowadays to do that in, uh, in Node.js, and we kind of build a whole uh, platform as a service specifically for, for their, their needs. They write their own script with their own access pattern, and those scripts will, in the end, talk to the, uh, to the actual API server. And that way, they can kind of customize the API for their own needs and their own access pattern. Uh, besides that, it, it gives us a lot of uh, options in well, using different transport mechanisms like gRPC, if the devices are, are ready for that. So um, it, it just gives a lot more flexibility. And what advice would you have for others who need to implement an edge architecture? Think about it very hard before you do so. <laughs> um, so I think one thing which is interesting about microservices is, and, and to an extent also, um, edge architecture. So Sonder just talked about that whole discussion between, isn't microservices just a solution for um, modularization. The funny thing is that a lot of people use Netflix as kind of a poster child example of microservices because Netflix has been kind of one of the first big examples of doing microservices and um, obviously we do it at scale. Um, So a lot of people kind of want to be like Netflix. What I forget is that how many people work on those microservices. And I've talked to a lot of teams, uh, let's say a team of five people, and they decide they want to have a microservice architecture. What I don't realize is that every microservice here within Netflix has a team of five people working on that individual service. And that means that um, it, th- this whole mechanism only works if you, if you have that size of, of, of a developer base working on it as well. It just doesn't make sense if you are just a few developers all working on the same code base, essentially. So the first thing is, do you really want, want to have microservices? If you do uh, have microservices, then this edge layer actually makes a lot of sense. If you have devices connecting to well, to your backend microservices, you need something in between to kind of be the stable API uh, layer. And it also gives a lot of interesting opportunities to kind of internal communication with, with something like gRPC, for example. So one of the advices there is um, maybe look at something different than just doing REST. I see a lot of people talking about microservices just kind of by default using REST. There's better ways to do that. That's one way. Another way to look at it is um, how do you operate those services? So those those edge services, how do you how do you keep them running? 
especially if they're maintained by UI teams, which are not necessarily teams that are used to operating services, um, how do you deal with that? And you need a lot of tooling and a lot of infrastructure for that. And that's exactly what I will be talking about um, at a conference. Well, Paul and Sander, this has been great. If any of our listeners want to find out more about you and your activities, where can they go, Sander? So I'm pretty active on Twitter. So my handle is at Sander underscore Mac, M-A-K. And I also run a blog at branchandbound.net, uh, which contains many Java 9 related articles, but also general architecture and other technology articles. So uh, I would recommend going there. Okay. And Paul? Um, I'm also active on Twitter. I'm at pbucker. So um, first letter, last name. And I have a blog running on uh, paulbucker.io, which is first name, last name.io. Kind of blogging about stuff that I found interesting, working on technical things uh, lately, mostly module system related. Well, Paul Bacher, Sander Mock, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, uh, Jeff. Thank you for listening. Once again, we invite you to go to Safari, O'Reilly's technology and business learning platform, to access Paul and Sander's book, Java 9 Modularity, as well as another book Paul co-authored, Building Modular Cloud Apps with OSGI. Plus, you can view a video of Sander's presentation, Modules or Microservices, at last year's Software Architecture Conference and preview Paul's forthcoming presentation at the 2018 Software Architecture Conference, February 25th through 28th in New York City. If you like our podcast, please subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or Stitcher so that you never miss an episode. For the O'Reilly Programming Podcast, I'm Jeff Blyle.